You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Hey, hey, you're listening to a very special episode of Fly on the Call, Candid Conversations on Music. Besides the fact that it's one of my favorite interviews to date, I'm so excited to announce that Fly on the Call is now part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. The network just launched today with a pretty dang sweet roster, including the Punk Rock NBA Podcast, Axe to Grind, Dark Blue with Jeff Rickley, the Peer Pleasure Podcast, and a whole bunch more. Be sure to give Sound Talent Media a follow on Twitter and Instagram at STM Podcasts, and check out the full lineup at SoundTalentMedia.com. And don't worry, the podcast you've come to know and hopefully love over the last year isn't going anywhere. I'll still be seeking out diverse voices, asking thoughtful questions, and having deep conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. Like today's chat with Will Wood. We hit on a little bit of everything, including his new record, The Normal Album, his definition of normal, his love of doo-wop, mortality, and a whole lot more. If you haven't heard of him already, just hit play on the normal album. You're gonna love it. The easy for fans of is theatrical rock in the vein of Forgive Durden's Razia Shadow, My Chemical Romance, or Panic at the Disco. If you're into previous guests Jiraiya, Telethon, or Sarah and the Safe Word, Will Wood is most definitely up your alley, so sit back and enjoy. How has it been since the release of the album last Friday? Um, it's it's been you know uh, <laughs> it's been an experience. Yeah, uh, it's it's been it's been kind of uh, it's been weird, but it's been very gratifying. It's sort of like you ever have a falling out with someone and you 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 think about it. You think about all the things you'd like to you know yell at him while you're driving alone. And, uh, you know, sometimes you get a little worked up. I, um, I had that experience, essentially. You know, this, this album, has, it kind of feels like I finally had the chance to, to, to tell off that old friend I had a falling out with. You know, it feels like I finally had the opportunity to be like, all right, you know what, you people. And, um, you know, and, th- and that feels pretty good. Everything that's out there about me right now is old. It's old news. It comes from a time that I was not well. So you know, everything that was that uh, preceded the normal album's release, all these uh, photos of me in, in, in tights and dresses covered in face paint and flowers and, you know, acting all edgy, like, you know, that's all well and good and it's fun stuff, but it's so not who I am anymore and hasn't been me for a very long time. So it's, you know, nice to be able to, uh, you know, sort of uh, finally be able to say, actually, no, it's this guy and I've been this guy for a while now. I don't know who that dude is. Uh, <laughs> no. 
chance to express myself. So it's felt good. It's felt good. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I know like the kind of dropping of the, and the tapeworms from the name and then, you know, this album having kind of more direct and like personal lyrics and some of the best stuff. It sounds like that has been kind of cathartic for you. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I mean, there's like an entire documentary, mockumentary about people not knowing who you are. So what's, what is it like kind of, you know, exposing a little bit more of yourself? Um, you know, it's funny. I feel, huh. It's, it, that's really interesting that you, that you put it that way. Um, because I, I feel, I feel like my last record was a lot more personal. Whereas this one I feel is a lot more, you know, the, the last record I did, um, I've always said recording it was like trying to get a good photo of yourself in a hall of mirrors. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, uh, it was very much an introspective experience, uh, too much of one. And I guess that was kind of the point of the whole record was sort of, uh, uh, an, an expression of the futility of trying to find answers within yourself about yourself. So, so for me, selfish was very much a record that was very personal. And um, maybe I dressed up a lot of the lyrics in absurdity and, you know, uh, uh, tongue in cheek uh, nonsense and uh, all the drama and over the top stuff, but it's genuinely how I felt at the time. So, you know, I, I look at that record and being as, as being like, uh, like, I, I feel like people are listening to my middle school diary, <laughs> that record out there. And um, so that's, I felt, I feel very naked with that record. Um, whereas with this record, yeah, it's all, it's all quite honest and it is an honest self-expression, but I, I a lot more of it is uh, sort of social commentary and about my view of the world you know, sort of from the outside looking in, in a sort of way. But, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I suppose that by doing that, I inevitably show a lot of myself. You can't talk about the world without talking about your relationship with it, which I guess is something that I kind of address in the record itself. But I, I guess I hadn't really thought about perceiving the record as being to the outside, to, to the listener, uh, who isn't too close to see um, as much about myself as it is about the world around me. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess that's an inevitability. Uh, we're all defined by our circumstances, the space we occupy and the things we aren't as much as the things we are. I guess going off that kind of, you mentioned the, you know, a lot of it is kind of like your interpretations of like the world that you're in relationship with the world that you're talking about. And I think uh, sardonic is a word that came up in almost every review that I read. Can you tell me a little bit more about kind of, I mean, obviously like the, the name, the normal album is in itself kind of tongue in cheek. Um, you know, can, can you tell a little bit more about, you know, what, what your definition of normal is and, you know, how you kind of relate to the term? Um, yeah, uh, throughout my life, and here I go, kind of giving a little extra credence to the interpretation that this record is about me. Um, <laughs> throughout my life, I have always felt like I didn't quite, yeah, didn't fit in all of that now, which is funny because I feel like that's a pretty universal experience, which I guess is kind of the point of what I have to say about this is I felt like an outcast, perhaps by my own doing uh, and my own refusal to conform or to uh, maybe even accept other people. You know, it could have, could have come from a place of rejection 
of others as opposed to being rejected by others, maybe a little bit of both. But um, because, of, uh, because of my experiences feeling like I was a little bit too weird, I, I, I would often hear, you know, parents, guidance counselors, therapists, all of that, say variations of like, well, what is normal? That kind of, that oft-repeated platitude that, uh, what's the, a question you don't actually want the answer to. That, that kind of question, it, it's, it's not really meant to be answered. And I've always felt like that, I've always wanted to answer it. I've always wanted to kind of be like, uh, not this. <laughs> you know, because of, of, of course there's a definition to the word. The word exists, it means something. Um, how much it means, I think varies quite a bit, but it does mean something. It means the norm. It means the most common, the, uh, the thing that people have in common, uh, the stuff that society at large accepts and has patience and tolerance for. So that's always been something that's kind of kicked around inside my head is that, you know, culture at large wants to be accepting, wants to say, eh, what is normal, but doesn't really mean it when it says it. But then I thought about it some more, um, especially over the past few years. And I've kind of come to the conclusion that the, uh, that, that, you know, there, there are kind of inevitably two answers to that question that one could conjure. And that is, well, not this, or it's, yeah, you're right. Um, and I think that there's a little bit of truth to both of those responses that, no, there is no such thing as normal, but, you know, only because there is. There's only such a thing as normal because of how weird we all are and the rules we have to follow as a result of how weird we are. That underneath all of the behavioral habits we take on for the sake of others and for the sake of acceptance by our culture that you know, raises us, those traits we take on and the, um, uh, the way we live our lives as a result of external pressure or internal pressure to respond appropriately to the external pressure, that is normal. That does create what's normal, but it, it's kind of, uh, it's a response to what makes us all weird that we all fail to meet the um, conventional standards mm-hmm. of, you know, our, our culture. We all fail. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we have to, you know, and I don't mean we have to as in it's a requirement. I mean, it's just nature. There would be no standards of behavior if there wasn't something to control. Mm-hmm. And so, so you know, th- everybody has their own definitions of what is normal of what is acceptable, about what should be acceptable by culture at large. Everybody has their own version of normal, their own uh, private standards of behavior, their own experiences, what feels normal to them. And that's always going to be somewhat at odds with the big normal. And so I feel like this record is kind of a conversation between the big normal and the little normal. That my intentions with the normal album is to kind of explore the big normal through the little normal lens and vice versa. So I went out of my way to include some pop tropes and some tropes from dead genres that have kind of contributed to the uh, aesthetic palette of Western culture, the things that have defined the norms of our society over the past, you know, 100 years, I guess, almost at this point, based on, you know, the, the way I'm drawing from uh, genres, because um, I try to go back to the 30s uh, in one track anyway, um, while at the same time kind of 
subverting it, twisting it on, twisting it on its head, especially lyrically, you know. And then I call it the normal album because I'm, I guess I'm trying to, uh, I guess I'm trying to contribute to normal. I'm trying to not just talk about it, not just explore the idea of it, but to take my little normal and have its conversation with them uh, and say, well, this is normal too. And uh, now we're going to work on what the big normal is. Um, here's a little something that I made. Um, I hope that other people out there who relate to my little normal will glom onto it and that'll help affect the big normal in a way that's uh, more positive for people with whom I have little normals in common with. For sure. Yeah. So like almost like expanding the definition of normal in a way. I guess so. Um, I, I mean, I feel like that's a pretty lofty goal, um, <laughs> but in my own little way. <laughs> expanding the definition of normal for people who need it the same way do or would like it the same way I do anyway. (laughs) And I mean, you mentioned in there, um, like the genre blending that you do. And I've seen you kind of talk about, talk about the fact that, you know, kind of what's part of what's missing from the current like wave of nostalgia for the eighties is like, you know, the the nostalgia for the fifties that was originally present in the eighties. Um, and the fact that you're kind of like not trying to capture a simpler time, but, um, almost in some ways, like the longing for that simpler time. Uh, like, can you yeah. tell me a little bit more about that? Well, I mean, we're all defined by the past. And what we consider normal right now is kind of a response to our own pasts. The, uh, the cultural tastemakers right now, the people who are responsible for making mainstream media and mainstream ideologies, you know, a lot of them grew up in the 80s. And so the 80s is what's normal to them. When you see Stranger Things, when you see, uh, pick your favorite 80s nostalgia TV show, what you're really seeing is you're seeing people express their normal. You're seeing people have their little normal conversation. You're seeing, um, you're seeing, I think, a lot of times an expression to bring things back to normal. Because every generation feels like, oh, this new generation is out of control. Uh, this world has gone crazy. I can't tell what's up from down. Uh, everybody's lost their minds and we got to get back to normal, you know, make America great again and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the truth of the matter is that the part that the, the world that you're looking back to, that you're getting your idea of normal from, in this case, the 80s to, you know, uh, the, the Gen X media factories, it, it wasn't, it wasn't normal. It was weird to the people who created the culture for you in that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get things like Greece. You know, you go back to the 80s and they give you Greece because people who were responsible for, you know, people of the generation who are now responsible for making media in the 80s, they're trying to get back to their normal, mm-hmm. which is the 50s. And I guess I look back on 80s music and I think Greece and I think, well, there's just a layer. That's just people, you know, right now there are people trying to capture the normal of the 80s, but one of the best parts of the normal of the 80s was their desperate attempts to get back to the normal of the 50s and so on and so forth. As a matter of fact, you, you hear people talk about the 90s right now specifically. Um, I'm a little slow on the pickup to uh, which <laughs> is really responsible for uh, culture right now. But it, you look back at people, you know, having this craving for the 90s. And there's an old song from the 20s uh, called Back in the Gay Old 90s. Uh, and it's about the 1890s. And, and it's, it's funny, it's always been happening. And it's in kind of like almost invariably these, you know, 25 to 35 to 40 year cycles in a sense. And I might be connecting dots that aren't necessarily entirely there. But I guess my point in doing this is to point out that 
people are longing for normal. People are longing for things to go back to normal. They're longing for simpler times, for innocence, for uh, what defined their childhood that they've now lost. Mm -hmm. And loss of innocence being, I think, a big part of that. And uh, it's, it's, I guess, kind of an expression of that futility. And uh, so, yeah, so by, by having these tracks that are kind of, um, or at least, for instance, specifically Love Me Normally, the uh, first single off the record, it's very much, uh, it's got features of a doo-wop song. It's very doo-wop. It's in 6-8, and it's got, you know, uh, a 1-3-4 uh, minor 4 chord progression. You know, it's, it's, it's got a lot of doo-wop features in it, but it's done through this, you know, very 80s lens with the synths and the electronic drums and the, the big rock ending. And, uh, you know, by doing that, I'm trying to make something that is, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's 20s nostalgia for 80s nostalgia for 50s nostalgia, <laughs> what I'm trying to create. For sure. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, blending all those kind of like different eras, where does, where does like your love for that come from? Like, are you genuinely like, do you genuinely love that music or is it more like you find it interesting and interesting to incorporate in? I genuinely love doo-wop. Um, 80s pop, eh. <laughs> I, list, I started listening to a lot of it while trying to put together this record and only so much of it's influenced for it because a lot of the record is very much not that. And a lot of the record doesn't play with that theme at all. But I do have a very genuine love. I was, I was always really big specifically on Bobby Vinton. He was my favorite. He... Um, I saw him, I guess, a while back now. Geez, he might have passed by now. I don't know. But uh, Bobby Vint was this Polish-American polka and doo-wop artist. And he really got his name with tracks like Mr. Lonely and Blue Velvet. Uh, funny story about Bobby Vinton. His first, uh, his first hit record was Roses Are Red. Uh, he was working at a record label. And he wasn't a singer yet. He was working at a record label. And he had an opportunity to, to uh, record his own uh, single. And they said, here, pick from these demos from composers and songwriters and pick, pick a song and we'll record it for you. And he picked a song out of the, out of the reject pile. <laughs> uh, and that, and everybody was like, are you sure you want to do this? We rejected this song. This is the trash. And he said, no, I want to do this one. And it was Roses Are Red and it led to his success. You know, it charted. And uh, I'm, I'm rambling at this point, but I'm expressing my love for doo-wop <laughs> is my point. <laughs> um, he plays a mean clarinet, or at least did. I don't know if he's still around. Um, I hope he is. But uh, but yeah, no, I, I do genuinely love doo-wop. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, I mean, if, if people can already tell from the way our conversation is going, one of the things that stood out to me is, you know, kind of like the density of the music um, in both like the layers of the instrumentals, you know, the, the melding of genres and, you know, the fast and hard lyrics. I, I could imagine it being, you know, overwhelming for some people to listen to, but it seems like it would be even more overwhelming to, you know, like write and perform and record it. What's kind of like the creative process like for you and how do you, you know, keep everything, you know, organized and under control? It's so different for every piece. And when I say every piece, I don't mean like, I'm not referring to my songs as pieces. Um, I'm not, <laughs> not that pretentious. I, uh, I do, um, when I say piece, I mean pieces of songs, ideas. It's, a, it's different for every individual idea I'm trying to execute. You know, for, for much of the process of this record, this record is the culmination of a few years of songwriting. <laughs> My last record was the culmination of six months of songwriting. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so for this one, the process has been longer than the process has been. You know, 
I don't know when I started writing the record um, because I was writing the songs for a long time. The oldest song on the records from 20, um, or I wrote it in 26 and was pretty much done with it. And the, uh, and the arrangement of some of these songs go back as far as like 2018, which isn't crazy, but um, it's not like some huge uh, leap in terms of time. But the point is that the process is so varied. And, you know, so for instance, with, uh, with the track Black Box Warrior, OK Ultra, um, that, that song sounds like what it sounds like on the record because of the level of detail that went into executing it. Whereas some of the other songs were just kind of fast and loose <laughs> in their execution. But for the most part, the process for this record was I have a song. I've been sitting on it for up to four years. I bring it to a band that is Mike Bollieri on guitar, Matt Berger on the alto, Seth Conti on the drums, and Vader Boris on the bass. And I show them the song. I bring them a demo of it. We listen to it. And then we just start jamming on it and see what, uh, what comes from there. And, um, you know, and, and usually... I'll, you know, and, and I'll direct that process and I'll have some ideas and some very specific things I want to hear. But a lot of times what you end up hearing on the record is very much defined by the, uh, the, the individual stylings of the tapeworms and, um, you, know, what, you know, what their unique take on my song might uh, entail. And uh, in this case, while I was a lot more piloting the uh, the arrangement and orchestration of it and because I had a lot more experience with composition I uh, you know I actually you know really got into the guts of the arrangement you know there was some collaborative efforts there especially with the horn section too um, my point is I'm, I'm rambling again but my point is that the uh, the process is complicated it depends on what exactly I'm trying to execute with the horn section I had to sit down with Matt Berger show him the parts and then sit down individually with the other horn players and then get them together and then through Matt Berger and you know because I don't speak horn um, <laughs> you know uh, build the horn section from there okay, Berger, this is, this is the part that we were talking about here. Help me build this horn arrangement. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there's a lot of, it's, it's complicated. I had like email exchanges with a viola player where I, I didn't even sit down with them. I never met her in person, Victoria Gull. Oh. Um, we, uh, we just emailed each other about what kind of thing I wanted to hear on the song. You mentioned like that the last record was kind of the culmination of you know six months compared to some of these songs dating back to 2016. Even what kind of made now the right time to you know put them to tape and have some of the ones that have been around for longer have they kind of like changed either you know actual in actuality through their instrumentation and stuff or like in the way that what they mean to you? Well, it, it just happened now. Um, if I could have done it sooner, I would have tried to. Um, I don't know if I would have been able to. Um, I think that really is just a matter of circumstance. I didn't want to wait four years, but um, if one can avoid waiting that long, I think most people do, you know, because I've been, I've been sitting on selfish and everything is a lot since 2016. And I released everything is a lot. My first record about a year before selfish. Um, and I recorded selfish six months after putting out everything is a lot. The reason Selfish came out at all was because of circumstance. I had an opportunity to work with somebody for cheap who I couldn't have worked with otherwise, and I could only do it then. <laughs> um, so I scrambled to put together a record. And I went, okay, this will be a real weird one. We'll get super experimental with it, and we'll scream and holler and make all kinds of noises. You know, whereas uh, 
this was a much more calculated and planned decision. And it allowed me to draw from a wider breadth of songs. The timing just kind of, it kind of just happened when it happened because that's when it could. You know, I think that if in 2018, somebody had, had hit me up and said, hey, I can do this record for you for cheap, I would have jumped at it. But I am glad for how things turned out because um, any sooner or perhaps any later, the record that you end up hearing now, uh, well, it wouldn't have happened the way it happened. And I'm quite satisfied with For sure. Yeah. And I mean, you talked about the kind of the circumstances surrounding it. And um, I mean, the cult following is a kind of common term for your fan base. And I mean, you were able to hit the goal for your Indiegogo in the first 24 hours. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of developed that fan base and how it kind of exists? You know, I'm not entirely sure how I developed the fan base I now have because it's all, it's changed quite a bit. You know, people fall off, people join, people move on, you know, people lose interest, people discover it, rediscover their interest. Well, when I started off, I was very active in the underground music scene in New Jersey, which was very punk oriented, which ideologically I don't mesh with very well. And um, just personality wise, I don't know. I'm very much a career oriented kind of guy. I think I was a little bit too ambitious for a lot of that scene. But I did catch on quite a bit in that scene. And they liked me until I started charging $30 a ticket Um, (laughs) because they're communists. And uh, no, I'm just, I'm just playing. Uh, I mean, I'm not playing about them being communists. I think they would self-identify as communists. I'm playing with the idea that I somehow have disdain for that. Um, You know, and, and that's where my fan base first developed. But a lot of that fan base really, they're not, a lot of that scene is not, they don't so much get attached to the music necessarily as they do to the experience of going to the DIY show. And as much as they do enjoy, you know, just the whole ritual of it all. And there's something that's really admirable about that. There's something that's really beautiful about that. But it's not necessarily great for maintaining a, um, a strong fan base when you don't play punk music and you don't necessarily see the world the same way. Hmm. So, you know, you look at like Against Me. Uh, if you ever read uh, Laura Jane Grace's book, Tranny, she, uh, uh, she talks a lot about how the punk scene kind of turned on her because of how career oriented she is. And I wouldn't say they turned on me, but they're not you know, they don't make up the majority of my fan base anymore, the New Jersey punk. Mm-hmm. You know, they're still there in, uh, in pockets, um, the New Jersey DIY music scene. But um, that's kind of where I started and how I was able to then build from there in the sense I was able to then justify to people a reason to go to shows. I was able to then say, hey, other people like this. And, you know, it kind of took, took on, its, it, it, it kind of built momentum from there. And, and so I started developing pockets of cult following in various places. I found people talking about me on Russian message boards. The internet was a huge part of all of that. And as of the last like year or so, that following has uh, exponentially grown because of notable people on the internet starting to promote my work or starting to express their connection to my work. You know, people making animated music videos of me, people with a lot of followers on YouTube. And all of a sudden, uh, one day I've got 2,000 followers on, or 2,000 listeners on Spotify a month. A year later, I've got like 60,000. And and so I don't even necessarily know my cult following anymore. There was a time where if I went to a show, I recognized almost everybody there. Even if there was up to like 200 people at the show, I could be like, yep, I remember he's from Delaware. Uh, Whereas now, I mean, I haven't, played a show since this huge sudden influx of new fans 
But I look out on the internet and I see all these people who I have nothing in common with. I've never met them. I don't know them. And so I don't really know much about my fan base anymore. It's kind of gone out of control. The, the, um, uh, <laughs> I say that like it's a bad thing. It's, it's weird. I don't really know where they're all coming from at this point. I think a lot of them are coming from the, uh, the arts scene on the internet. You know, a lot of the art Tumblr accounts, animators on YouTube, all that stuff. And um, I don't understand it. And I am terrified of the internet. Um, <laughs> I'm terrified of computers. I hate it all. I'm a major technophobe. But unfortunately, that's how I pay the bills now. And so, um, but most of my work is now done through Patreon. And I know my fan base on Patreon quite well. I, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I could even call it a cult following anymore. I guess I could because it's like a very niche interest what I do. I'm curious, like you mentioned, like the Patreon, and I know I've seen you're like in the top 1% of Patreon creators or something like that. I feel like that's obviously like that's a newer kind of like revenue stream for artists. Like how was it kind of embracing that and, you know, finding so much success with that? Well, at first I thought it was going to be like a side hustle. You know, I started it like three years ago and I really did think it was just going to be a side hustle, you know, because that was around the time I was still mostly active in the punk scene. And I got in a lot of trouble with the punk scene for, for having a Patreon not a lot of trouble, but some people yelled at me for trying to make money. Uh, and and I, uh, you know, I didn't expect for it to go in the direction it went in. But the more time I put into the Patreon, the more money it made and the more I had to put more time into it. And nowadays, like 90% of my career is Patreon, just because it's my main revenue stream. And I really enjoy doing it. Uh, the stuff that comes out on Patreon is very different from what you would see publicly uh, of my work otherwise, you know, not Patreon stuff. It's funny, you know, my last record was 2016. And well, I mean, now my last record was a week ago, but before <laughs> that it was 2016. And, you know, I don't read the comments. I don't look at social media anymore. You know, I don't run my own Instagram. I don't run my own Facebook. I stay away from that stuff. Like I said, major technophobe. Also, people are, are animals. I, I, I live in a, a salt box colonial out in the sticks. You know, I, I fancy myself a J.D. Salinger type, um, only less miserable, hopefully. But that, that was, it was four years ago, and I have seen people. You know, I, I haven't always avoided online discourse like the play like <laughs> I do now. I saw people a while back saying, it's a shame Will Wood hasn't done anything in years. And I was like, geez, man, I've been grinding away. It's just you, nobody sees it but people on Patreon. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the vast majority of my work is Patreon exclusive stuff. I have a zine that I put out. You know, I do prose, I do visual art, I do some film related stuff. And through the Patreon, people get exclusive access to that stuff. And they also get little gifts, little pieces of art in the mail, little, uh, you know, pieces of merch you can't get other places, access to stuff long before anybody else. You know, some members on Patreon heard the normal album six some members of Patreon, they see music videos months before they're put out. They see behind the scenes footage, all that stuff. But, um, you know, coming up with new things to give my Patreon members and then producing those things and putting them out um, really is uh, the majority of my work. Um, that's why you'll see in some places I'm not even referred to as a musician. I'm referred to as a Patreon creator, <laughs> which is like, I mean, I guess um, it's all, you know, it's all based on the music. That's where it all starts. And what it, what it all kind of surrounds. Um, even the stuff that is unrelated to the music that I do on Patreon, I still kind of tie into it in one way or another. Mm -hmm. But, you know, just to like, give you an idea, like I put a lot of work into the Patreon. You know, top 1% of Patreon creators, you know, that says a lot 
less about my Patreon success and a lot more of how hard it is to break it through onto Patreon. Um, I got really lucky. Um, and I think it helps to have a fan base coming from somewhere else. As a matter of fact, it might be necessary. You know, a lot of Patreon creators, they don't make enough. And I think that's a problem. Um, and I also, you know, have to say, it really speaks more to the income disparity of the world in general than anything else, because uh, am I allowed to cuss on this? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> okay, I feel like I have already, but um, yeah, that fucking asshole Jordan Peterson um, has like 60, makes like 60 grand a month off Patreon. So, you know, and I don't make anything like that. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm destitute compared to Jordan Peterson's Patreon. Uh, fuck, fucking shit floats. I, don't, I have no idea. <laughs> but um, just to, like give you an idea, like, you know, I, I do pretty well on Patreon, but it's still very much a niche interest and it's still very much, you know, yeah, you, you could, I guess you could still call it a cult following because my fans, the ones who I, you know, see the most and the ones who are, are the most interactive are very interactive and they are really supportive. You know, I've got people pledging up to a hundred dollars a month on, um, you know, I, I'm really lucky to be able to have that kind of fan base. And I try to connect with them as much as well without having a nervous breakdown. That's been one of the things that's been difficult about putting out the new one. There's been a lot of pressure and a lot of attention that I'm not used to, comfortable with, or really, I don't think cut out for. You mentioned like the pressure that it kind of creates. Like, how do you sort of like find yourself dealing with that? Um, what's better PR to say well or to say poorly? <laughs> uh, which one makes me look like, uh, which one do you think will sell more records? Probably Nervous Breakdown, right? I suppose so. I th- feel like Nervous Breakdown sells more records. You know, what would sell the most records is if I died. Um, so I think the worse I'm doing, the happier the general public is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the more records you sell. Um, I, I, I'm kidding, but at the same time, that is something I've noticed is that people tend to tie the amount of value a piece of art has to the amount of suffering the artist went through to create it or in the process of creating it. We tend to be like, oh, this person suffers for their art. This is a tortured artist. And I'm just like, ugh, good Lord. Y'all people don't care about me one bit, do you? Um, <laughs> and, uh, so so, you know, basically what my point is here is that I'm a true artist. And so I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the best I can to take it in stride. Getting like my blood tested and stuff to make sure that this is, um, that sounds unrelated, but it's not. And that's a problem. Uh, having to get my blood tested uh, as part of my response <laughs> to <laughs> releasing an album. It sounds like a non sequitur, but I swear to God, it is not. And that's wild i got like doctors up the wazoo right now uh one of them a gastroenterologist so literally um my body is reacting to my mind and my mind is reeling look i'm doing the best i can um i'm hallucinating a little bit more than usual um i'm uh i'm holding on i'm doing okay you know something is 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 quite anxiety inducing a big part of you know what i explore on the record is uh the concept of mental illness, psychiatric disorders, and what those really are and what they really mean and uh, how our responses to them or our efforts to destigmatize them are effective or ineffective and, uh, you know, uh, how maybe some of them are stupid. And, <laughs> and so I do have a fair amount of experience with all that stuff. This isn't, this ain't my first rodeo, you know, I'll be all right. But uh, it's not easy. It's, it's, it's not easy. But I, but all things considered, I look around, I look at the way, I look at the nature of the parasocial relationship between artist and fan. I look at the nature 
of the process, how people treat, what the rules are for treating quote unquote public people. And I think to myself, all things considered, I'm doing an all right job. I think anybody who can totally take it in stride, there's something up with them. Uh, that is, you know, either there's something wrong with them or there's some kind of ubermensch because nobody should be able to be totally comfortable with this. It doesn't make sense. Uh, there really are no rules, you know, and, and the rules that are there, if you draw a boundary, people call you sensitive and whiny. You know, I almost feel like, I'm, I take this, I'm about to say a sentence that uh, when it comes out of my mouth, I just want you to know, I'm going to provide a disclaimer just afterwards. So I know it's not a disclaimer, an explanation. I almost feel bad for Donald Trump. Hold on. Don't, <laughs> don't touch that dial. My, the, the guy, he's clearly a very sensitive man. <laughs> um, he's, he's clearly a, 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 he's a broken heart. He is, he is just a, a, a very sad boy. Um, and you can tell by, by the way he responds on social media. He blocks anybody who bothers him on social media. And of course he does. Look, I don't like him. Not one iota. Um, and that's all I'll say about it because I don't want to get gulagged. I feel like that was too much too. First they came for the communists is all I'm saying. Um, and uh, the, um, I've already said, I'm going to be scared for the next week because I said those things. Never criticize anybody. Um, so we're going to talk him up now. We're going to talk real nice about him. We're going to say, um, I feel bad for to live his best life. He's trying to do the job right, man. We got to leave him alone. Yeah, uh, we, <laughs> you know, he blocks anybody who bothers him on Twitter, um, which is not what a president should do, but it's totally something that I wish I could get away with doing. Um, I don't have a Twitter because of that, because I can't handle social media and uh, how cruel people are. But um, if I blocked everybody who bothered me, I, I mean, there, there, there'd be nobody really left. That's not true. My point <laughs> is simply that I, you can't blame somebody for doing that. Um, and I really feel bad about using um, that guy as my example, but I can't think of anybody else who is as transparently sensitive on social media. But you know, uh, I'm, 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 I'm a sensitive guy. I'm not super easily offended. But you know, like I said, there are no rules. So I'm nervous about responding negatively to straight up sexual harassment. And I'm nervous about responding uh, negatively to really just regular old harassment and bullying. You know, that's the kind of stuff that I just, that's one of the reasons why I'm off social media. <laughs> um, but the way people talk is there really are, there are no rules. And I say all that in a way that really makes it seem like I'm somehow resentful of the amount of success that I've seen. And I'm hesitant toward it. I'm not a big fan of all the attention. I thought I would be, I was wrong. But um, I still very much appreciate it because it means that people are connecting to my work and it means that they're inspired by it in one way or another. And it means also that, so, you know, I have mixed feelings about it all. I feel like a lot of that kind of ties in with you know the, the last al the last track on the album Memento Mori, which in some ways feels more like a postscript to the album to me than like uh, a final track. Um, but I mean, kind of talking about like the inev inevitability of death and like relative unimportance of like life and legacy in the long run. Can you tell me a bit more about that song? How that came together? Um, it felt like that song. I felt like it was the song that I was always supposed to write um, in the sense that I don't remember writing it. 
I remember working on lyrics, but I don't remember the process of writing it. I don't remember sitting down and being like, this is what I'm going to do. But, but I feel like a lot of my best stuff happens when I stop caring and I stop trying to accomplish something. And I just sit down and go, write. Doesn't matter what it is. Just write what, what sounds good to you and what feels good. And that song, I guess, came out as a result of that because I guess I was kind of working towards being that guy for so long. The, the incredibly morbid Randy Newman or the, uh, the yeah, yeah, nihilist Randy Newman. Um, <laughs> you know, there's always been that part of me that's, that's been waiting to write like a uh, Americana swing tune about, um, and uh, you know, so I, I, I feel like maybe the writing process of it involved the fact that it felt like an inevitable. And it's interesting that you refer to it as a postscript because I kind of intended it as such because I have this habit of, of doing that on all three records. There is like a final song that kind of sums up what I feel like is the response to all the emotions that I've expressed throughout the rest of it. What I feel like is kind of the culmination, what the conclusion I want people to draw is so on and so forth. You know, I, I, I've read a lot of stuff about story writing. Um, because I wanted to be a filmmaker when I was younger. And the climax isn't the end. The finale isn't the end. You have to have that resolve, that resolution, that falling action after the rise in action. And so having the penultimate track on the record be Love Me Normally, which is so big and so thematically in your face, and then have the last song be like, yep, we're fucking weird. People are weird. <laughs> People are, we all, none of us fit in because fitting in is not actually possible if you're genuinely honest with yourself. I mean, like deep down, you know, embracing the shadow honest with yourself. So, you know, that's very troubling and it hurts sometimes, but you're going to die anyway. So live the way you, you want to when you can. You know, I definitely was trying to paint that as kind of like, I don't want to say moral of the story because I'm not really telling a story, nor do I want to act like I have this cosmic insight that is impossible to come across in any other way. You know, I'm not <laughs> trying to start a cult here yet, but the, uh, that song, it felt like uh, it was a postscript, but also I feel like I feel like it's it's the best one on the record personally, or at least one of the best ones, because uh, it says something that I've always wanted to say, and have always felt, and that is that yeah, uh, uh, in in the face of the infinite, even the biggest thing in the universe is still nothing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, a billion compared to infinity is zero compared to. And so I, I feel like I just made some mathematical claim that I can't back up. It makes sense to me. <laughs> um, that song was definitely a long time coming. I wanted to, I wanted to say that, I wanted to share it, and I wanted to do it in a way that was at least somewhat humorous, if not coming. And I felt like if that's the big statement that people get from this record, is that despite all of our fears, all of our insecurities, and all of our identities and the stuff we cling to and this urge to fit in and get along and be accepted, despite all of that, it's all gonna be nothing. It, it already is nothing. Because if something is about to be nothing, where is its significance now? You know, um, it, like, you know, let, let's, say, uh, let, let's say you uh, accidentally kick your dog and uh, you feel really bad 
but you did it on the way to the vet to have it put to sleep because of the tumors in its head. Oh, it doesn't matter if you kick the dog. dog dog's not going to remember. A dog, not, not only is the dog alive for much longer, but he's not going to remember. This is very difficult for me to say. I lost a dog recently, but um, my point is not to say kick dogs. My point is to say that if you kick a dog, this dog's going to die anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm advocating for the abuse of animals by saying that, but my point is I'm advocating for, the, for uh, accepting and forgiving yourself and others for abnormal or antisocial behavior uh, because we're all fucking weirdos and we're all going to die. Well, I, I normally wrap up by asking for either a piece of advice or something you've been thinking about, but I think uh, that puts a pretty good uh, bow on it. So I will ask though, <laughs> uh, what else is coming up? What haven't, uh, we hit on that you've really been wanting to get out. Um, geez, you know, a lot of things. Um, I wouldn't know where to start. Um, there's so many things I'm dying to say because it's been so painful for the past four years to be looking around and being like, oh my goodness, I've become, I, I'm using the word famous, extraordinarily <laughs> loose here, but I've become noteworthy, still loose known i've become known by some people some pe- a small group of people but enough where i've developed a fan base based on somebody who i am so glad to not be any and so for four years i've been pulling my hair out dying to say who i am dying to express how i actually want to approach my career what i really want as an artist and my more long-term goals. Like, yeah, the, that, that persona I used to wear is still, that, that is what I wanted at the time, but it's been such a long time since I wanted that, that I'm, I've just been bursting at the seams with this urge to express something. And now the uh, Love Me Normally, the single was recorded back in the summer of 2018. And um, it's like kind of my point in saying that is I feel that way again. I'm starting to get to that place again <laughs> where some of this record, I'm just like, oh, I'm not that guy anymore, people. I put out the normal album and I do feel so much better and like I've been so much more honest and I've expressed myself more effectively and accurately than ever before. I do feel quite that and I do feel like I accomplished something I really needed to accomplish and I do feel a lot better and I am very happy with how, uh, <laughs> as much as I've complained. But I've started to develop that little thing that little seed in my head is starting to grow. It's starting to take root that's saying, you people don't fun understand me. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, there's a part of me that's just already dying, just like straining at the leash to put out something new. But I'm, I'm, I can't even think about it right now because I mean, not only am I like still recovering, not only have they only just cut the umbilical cord on this baby, um, but uh, you know, I'm I'm still I'm still on the delivery uh, table or whatever they use. Um, I'm still on the fucking stirrups, man. Um, <laughs> yuck. Um, I'm still recovering, and it's gonna probably be a good long while before I'm ready to take on any new big projects in that regard. So right now, what I'm focusing on is uh, watching things unfold from a distance, um, but mostly not even looking and trying to stay. Uh, focused on what I can do right now, and that is uh, focus on my Patreon, give people uh, the most I can, 
you know, let them see that seed as it grows <laughs> and let them get that look behind the scenes and work on the zine and the prose and the visual art and the other film projects that I've started to work on. You know, it's, it's really, it's, uh, now that I put out this new record, it's, it's, you know, back to the Patreon as soon as I can, things have been kind of <laughs> slow there. So, you know, I guess the thing that I have to get out is patreon.com slash the real Will Wood. Basic membership starts at $5 a month. And in exchange for that, you get sneak peeks and stuff. My private blog where I post original tracks and uh, access to my fan discord server, which is, uh, well, uh, uh, pretty active and pretty fun. And uh, you get even extra, even more exclusive stuff. If you hang around there for long enough, you'll get more things and more spoilers and sneak peeks and exclusive content, yada, yada, yada. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry, I'm using the last couple minutes to just uh, shamelessly self-promote, but, you know, I like money. Now that was a journey. I hope you came out of this conversation a changed person, or at least a fan of Will Wood. The normal album is even more of a roller coaster, so once you're adequately strapped in, go press play. If you're not quite ready for the full experience, why not check out the Distinguished Guests of Fly on the Call Spotify playlist? The link is in the show notes and it includes a curated selection of tracks from every musician who's ever been on this podcast. It's updated every Tuesday to give those who follow along a sneak peek and chance to familiarize themselves with that Wednesday's guest a bit in advance. And hey, maybe go ahead and subscribe to Will Wood's Patreon if you like what you hear. Don't forget to follow Sound Talent Media on Twitter and Instagram at STM Podcasts. And if you're looking for something new, give some of the other pods on the network a chance. A special thank you to the team over there, and as always, to The Alternative for helping to promote the show. Thanks to Kaylin West of Tiny Stills for the theme song, and Michaela Jane Palermo for the artwork. You can keep up to date by subscribing to the podcast and following the show on Twitter and Instagram at FlyOnTheCallPod. Feel free to email any questions, comments, or other feedback to me at FlyOnTheCallPod at gmail.com. See you next week! One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or were nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.